Welcome to The Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, broadcasting out of 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. This week, we're following on with part two of the three-way conversation between Tune Nelson and Professor Michael Hudson on the state of the economic game that financial warfare we're all enduring. So uh, let's see what uh, we can all take away from uh, some of these wisdoms of Michael Hudson and great to have Tune Nielsen on the show too. A century ago, this is what people believe, that this is free market economics, and they cite uh, people like Adam Smith and John Stuart Mill and the great classical economists. Uh, But what the classical economists were talking about is economic rent. Uh, And the whole purpose of value theory to uh, these classical economists was to isolate economic rent as unearned income and to contrast it with labor and capital, which are the factors of production. Uh, You have some people that even believe that land is a factor of production, Uh, but it's no more a factor of production than uh, air or fire or water. It's a precondition for production, but what people call land is actually a legal privilege to extract economic rent. as opposed to the tax obligation that it used to be in uh, other societies. So you have uh, not only the vocabulary, but also the seemingly empirical statistics that have numbers to them, just like real science. Uh, as if, And they paint a, a false picture of the economy as if the more overhead you have, the more interest and financial charges you have to pay, the more rent and housing prices you have to pay, and the sicker you get. The more you have to pay doctors, the more you have to pay uh, uh, for ecological cleanup, as if somehow that all adds to gross national product, uh, as if somehow you're getting richer and richer instead of painting yourself into a corner. Wow, these are heavy, heavy uh, topics we're digging into. I think uh, for our, our podcasters, though, we might forge ahead with just a few more questions here because we're just getting started, aren't we, gents? Uh, there's days of conversation to go here on this topic, but uh, yeah, when you talk about GDP and this, uh, it uh, and the critique there, it brings to mind this criticism of the growth-based economy. Now, how uh, do you, do you see that perspective in Europe? Tuna, with uh, what's going on in Denmark, you've got one of the world's wealthiest economies. Uh, You know, everything should be rosy over there. But how is life on the street in in this context? Well, in Denmark right now, people haven't realized how serious the situation is or how serious it will get very soon. So I just spoke to a lot of Greek bankers actually in in Athens. I just spent 10 10 days down there. Yeah, that's true. They have have high uh, government debt, public debt. Yeah, that's true. Denmark has the world's highest private debt compared to <laughs> gross domestic domestic product. More than Australia, it's, I think it's 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 huge. It's the world's biggest, and this is just an an, an extraordinary bomb under the Danish economy and under the European economy. And um, yeah, people don't realize. So you have yes, obviously when you have government like you when you have public debt, it has to re- be refinanced uh, according to the to the these uh, credit agencies ratings but when you have but when you have this this private debt uh, it's being refinanced uh, personally in the bank it's it's suddenly it's not the this same big problem but it's a huge bomb on the economy it's a huge bomb so yeah right now we haven't realized how bad it will get but it will get really bad because when you have an economy which is based on growth you have you have 10 people in a room you give them all a hundred hundred dollars you have they all have to pay back uh, uh, ten dollars in interest or so 110 
one of them will won't be able to pay and you'll have to create even more money and you'll get yourself onto an exponential growth curve and at some stage it will stop so just uh, what about the um know the, the mortgage rates are probably pretty low in Denmark uh, and it seems like we're, we're locked into low low mortgage rates for a number of years and it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with the Federal Reserve Michael I'd love you to answer that point but just before we get there what's happening with credit card charges in Denmark because uh, uh, sure most of the debt in Australia is in a mortgage-based debt but uh, personal you know credit card debts uh, the interest rates they're charging on some of those are up uh, you know 15 17 percent and uh, you miss a few payments and boy you, you're in trouble aren't you you just can't get back yeah, so I guess that's the case all over the, all over Europe and all over the world is these uh, small companies offering uh, debt at extremely high rates. Uh, our discussion is different from most discussions uh, that you hear in the media because when most people talk about money, they're talking about inflation, as if somehow more money is more inflationary. We're talking about debt deflation, and that's the epoch that we've been in now for the last... Uh, uh, six or seven years since 2008. Uh, already in the 1930s, Irving Fisher uh, wrote a great article on debt deflation. And I think uh, if you realize that what we're in is a condition in which most of the growth of people's income is absorbed by debt payments, it's not available to be spent on goods and services. Uh, the question everybody should ask is the debt deflation of the disposable personal income. Now here's another word where we're using the language that's different from uh, the national income statistics. Most people, uh, they define disposable personal income as what you have after the government uh, takes out its tax uh, as it taxes the 99% instead of uh, real estate, instead of the 1%, uh, and it's the take-home pay. But we're talking about even after you get the take-home pay, families have what in America we call the monthly nut. Uh, you have to pay the uh, uh, the bank, uh, your debt, your housing costs, uh, the electric bill, uh, a gas or water bill. You have to pay uh, these bills. And once you pay these bills that are not for goods at all, uh, you have very little left to actually spend on food and clothing and transportation and the kinds of things that they, uh, they actually do count. Yeah, well, that sort of reminds me of uh, that, that fantastic interview we did a number of years ago, Michael, where we talked about how rent extraction has replaced comparative advantage as the uh, economic policy of choice. And from that, we've signed away this desire to develop the lowest overhead, op well, the lowest operating cost for our economy. So we'd gather some sort of uh, comparative advantage for our export industry. And now that so much more money is made in real estate, the pointy end of globalized capital is really being felt in this yet again uh, this global land bubble that's just zooming ahead just seven years since uh, the great recession kicked off with uh, Lehman Brothers so it's baffling how policymakers have have been able to convince the public with the Kono speak that austerity is the uh, desired choice forward for economic sanity yeah and it's and we're just and the, and the solution seems to be privatized, privatized, privatized. So they want to privatize everything. So yeah, what happens in Greece is a coup. But what will happen all over the all over the world if we don't stop this will be a huge privatization of all national assets. So in my country, most of farming has is is, is, is insolvent, and so they opened up for, uh, for 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 Chinese for international hedge funds like 
investment banks to just to just buy up Danish uh, farming land. So once you had to be a farmer, and you had to have a, have a green license in order to buy this land, and you had to use it for farming, now, yeah, just the richest oligarchs all over the planet could come to Denmark and buy land. So that's and that's just an example of the of the things that will happen more and more and more, because. The only way you can you can fight off debt deflation for just a tiny bit longer is by monetizing national assets, and that will just go on and on until we solve this problem. Many of the uh, media describe uh, privatization as uh, inherent uh, capitalism, but that's not American-style capitalism at all. Uh, the first uh, professor of uh, business economics at America's first business school, the Wharton School, uh, was Simon Patton uh, in the late uh, 19th century. And Patton pointed out that in addition to labor and capital, uh, and land as means of production, uh, there's a fourth factor of production, and that's uh, public, uh, the public infrastructure. And he said the, uh, the role of public infrastructure is not to make a return, that uh, labor can uh, earn wages, and uh, capital can earn profits, and uh, rentiers and landowners can extract rent. But the role of public uh, infrastructure is to lower the cost of living and to lower the cost of business. And so the, in America, you had very active government spending uh, on roads, on infrastructure, to make uh, America a low-cost economy so that it could outcompete uh, with uh, other economies. And that was uh, the American idea of industrial capitalism. But since we're World War I, the whole world has been changed away from industrial capitalism uh, to making countries competitive to finance capitalism. And the aim of finance capitalism is to maximize uh, the amount of debt that can be added on to any uh, asset, whether it's uh, real estate or uh, industry or uh, uh, cities and municipal budgets. And so the objective of finance capitalism is to maximize the cost. Now, we talked before about uh, what Americans spend their budget on. If you realize that before Americans spend good any money on goods and services, they have to pay a rent that is probably 20 or 30 times what the rent is in China, Indonesia, or other countries. That uh, if you could give Americans everything, all the goods that they use for nothing. You could give them all the food for nothing, all of the clothing uh, for nothing, and they still couldn't compete with zero uh, uh, cost of uh, uh, goods with uh, these other countries because of the price of, uh, the excess price to housing and the toll booth that they have to pay for medical care and for other services that have all been privatized and financialized. Uh, the real word for privatization should be financialization because the uh, buyers of privatized assets immediately uh, will borrow from one of their own banks or another bank so that they, uh, the idea is that uh, rent is for paying interest, that all of the uh, money they get from buying a uh, rent-yielding property, a road uh, or a hospital or something else, can be paid as interest, which is tax-deductible. And as long as you have uh, tax-deductibility for interest, you don't have any declarable income at all. And uh, this is the, uh, this tax-deductibility of interest is one of the things that has caused the fiscal crisis, forcing a tax shift off finance, off labor, off the 1%, onto consumers, and onto the 99%. So sales taxes are booming all around the world. Uh, it seems like Australia's been uh, cornered the uh, state level 
um, the mid-tier government has been cornered into uh, accepting the federal desire, the conservative desire to increase sales taxes. Uh, Michael, is that the future of uh, uh, public finance when we have this demographic cliff coming? I don't know what it's like in Denmark, but it, yeah. it's just an, a couple of years until the superannuation uh, tax loopholes, the expenditures, are going to be greater than the total pensions paid. So uh, it's just extraordinary, these carve-outs that are happening in public finance. And the best we can get is the sales tax because that's all that people can understand these days. Well, the final stage of finance capitalism, as you point out, is euthanasia. <laughs> yeah, well, I just wanted to say that in, in, uh, in, good, in good Money in Denmark, we, 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 me and uh, the chairman, Rasmus uh, Nielsen, uh, wrote an article about how this, uh, this undemocratic money system degrades politicians to being sort of uh, to sort of have discussions about how to tax most efficiently or so so the liberal so the liberal side of politics wants to privatize we know that but also the social democratic side of, of politics they don't know what to do so they end up talking about how can we control people even more so that we know what they're doing so that we can tax more efficiently and that's that's one of the one of the the consequences of this. So as long as we're not going to the to sort of strike at the core, we'll be having discussions about how much we should uh, uh, be willing to control and uh, and and sort of uh, monitor in order to have precise and and very very strong taxation. Uh, last week, as I mentioned, we had the uh, Republican uh, debate, and one of the, the most important uh, things that we've privatized in America is the political system. And Donald Trump, uh, who is uh, uh, tw uh, twice uh, as far ahead of anyone else in the Republican primary for running for president in the debate, said, look, we have a system. Uh, I'm buying you guys. I'm a businessman. I can your go j job as a politician is to be bought by me. And he said, you know, I've contributed to your campaign, and if I give you money for politics, I expect you to do what I'm paying you to do. And he said, it's not only the Republicans. Uh, I gave money to uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign, and uh, uh, she, uh, that's, she came to my wedding. She came to my wedding because I gave her money. That's what politicians do. So you have to realize that this is the direction in which Europe is going in. Uh, you privatize government, and uh, uh, government is given money by the richest sector, which is the financial sector, in order to cut finance on taxes and shift them on to the people. And if you can convince the voters that this is called wealth creation, if you can convince them that giving money to the 1% will trickle down, uh, then you're, all, you're in line to win the Nobel Prize. But also, so in Denmark, we just privatized 8% of, uh, of all the, the energy infrastructure in my country. Uh, it, was, it was bought by Goldman Sachs. Um, and there was huge demonstrations, uh, huge resistance, but nothing happened. But I'm also questioning, so how much can government really do? I mean, so uh, Denmark is a country which wants to uh, produce uh, wind energy and wants to be leading in, 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 in sustainable energy. And Goldman Sachs is sitting on all sustainable energy. They can they can sort of they can decide whether it will be profitable to have sustainable energy. So how much choice a small country like Denmark actually have in a situation like that? I would be questioning that. Within the current system. How about having a slogan? There's only one way to get rid of bankers. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, that one. Okay. <laughs> well. Um, so this is not this is not positive money stuff. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, uh, yeah, I mean, getting back to this control element, one, one aspect we, you know, we need to discuss when we're having such a broad-ranging topic is this, this element that politicians do have to pawn their policies uh, to these rent-seekers to pay for the advertising on what was once known as the public airwaves. Now, there is a lot of interesting things going on in the world of satellite technology and media uh, consolidation, if you like. And I just wonder if either of you have an opinion on what's happening in the media marketplace as now Foxtel uh, and other cable TV stations are, are well established here and have, have basically beaten back the, the public analysis of, of current day news sources. And from that, the... the the intellect of the people is really suffering due to this one-eyed uh, conservative type opinion that seems to be so much better resourced than what we can provide in the public sector where there's always budgetary cutbacks. Yeah, so I just went to Athens for 10 days and there they have about six uh, big outlets in, uh, in news. Five of them is owned by private families and uh, like big families and um, and they were all along, up until the referendum on the 5th of July, they were just fear-mongering and, and telling how, how bad it would be if they voted no for this election. Um, and even that, even then in that situation, you had 60% of the, of the people voting no. So if you had a good, well-functioning public uh, media platform in Greece set up at that stage, you would have 80-90% voting no. There's absolutely no doubt about it because... This this stuff was it was it was fierce it was fierce propaganda going on and still sixty percent of the yeah so this is so obviously especially for this course that we're trying to promote here uh, trying to promote that in a privately owned media uh, base would be I think impossible. So, uh, so Michael, you were there a few weeks before the the Greek referendum that famously said, uh, "Look, we must stand up to uh, the 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 troika and stop this um, continued privatisation and the cutback of pensions, increase the sales tax, and so forth." And Tuna, you were there afterwards and saw the betrayal that occurred. So, I'd love you both to sort of discuss about that process that played out. Michael, you were in the EU Parliament. Give us the background to why you were invited there. And, and what you at the EU Parliament in Brussels you were discussing to a to a certain group there. What was it about, and how did you see this whole process play out? Well, the left parties uh, invited me to uh, uh, to Brussels uh, right uh, when I was coming from a meeting with the Syriza, uh left in uh, Delphi uh, just before uh, we went to Athens, uh, and. The left parties in Europe have uh, realized that the euro itself was designed by the financial interests essentially to, to cut wages in half uh, as part of a class war uh, against wages. And uh, every uh, Europe doesn't have a central bank that does what a central bank is supposed to do, whether it's the Federal Reserve in America or the Bank of England. A central bank is supposed to finance the government deficit and print the money so that for the government to print to spend into the economy so that it does not have to depend upon banks and bondholders and their conditionalities but Europe doesn't have a central bank to do that Europe's central bank only lends to the banks on the conditions that uh, countries will cut back their pensions uh, will break up the labor unions uh, in America uh, essentially the model uh, the genius of the University of Chicago's free marketers was that 
that you can't have a free market if you're not willing to murder everyone who disagrees with you. You have to have totalitarian control. You have to kill every uh, labor union leader, every land reformer. If you're not willing to do that, you cannot have a free market. So the first thing that the Chicago boys did in Chile was to close every economic department in the country except for the, uh, the uh, Valparais, the, their own uh, Catholic university school where, the, where uh, their theory was taught. Uh, you can only teach one theory or you cannot control the population. And uh, if you don't have that movement, it has to go beyond your country. You have to start a movement such as uh, the United States did from Chile uh, up uh, that spread to Argentina. You have to be willing to kill over a million uh, labor leaders, land reformers, professors, uh, university publishers. If you're not willing to kill the opposition, you will not be able to convince people that uh, giving money to the one percent uh, is actually uh, in their own benefit. It's in their own benefit because then they won't get killed. Uh, if you're not willing to uh, to wrap your uh, economic theory in uh, with military force and police power, you cannot have the kind of free market that the University of Chicago is talking about. Well, I love it when you get fired up there, Michael. I'm sure you put a few zeros on those numbers, but uh, yeah, I'm sure the public gets the point, and I'm sure some of those rioters in Greece uh, understand what you're talking about. Uh, you know, th there is unheralded police brutality on on so many levels when the state comes to enforce what uh, a fascist interests, in a way, would like. And in uh, Australia, we just recently had a, a sort of. Uh, a big blow up about uh, um, a, a pro-fascist, uh, you know, sovereignty type party protesting, and then there was the the anti-fascist sort of anarchist crew, and of course the police, um, like they've done with the Confederates here in America, made sure they protected them, and there was even a photo of a copper giving one of these big thuggish, um, you know, neo-Nazi types uh, a big high five sort of thing. And it was caught on camera and it's just uh, it summed up sort of the, the, the mood of power enforcement. Uh, Michael, did you uh, want to footnote any of those numbers you just quoted? No. No, but I should go back to discuss uh, what happened in Brussels. Uh, the Greeks uh, were not uh, particularly there because they knew what was happening. The, uh, the other left parties in Europe, especially the Portuguese, uh, were uh, the most prominent members there because they're trying to think, how on earth can we get full employment? How can we get prosperous if uh, there's no central bank? How do we get free of the euro? Uh, and how, uh, if we do vote in a, uh, our own uh, party as, uh, in government, uh, what power does any democratic party have if uh, the Eurozone can tell us what uh, uh, German finance minister Schäuble uh, said to Janos Varoufakis? Uh, do you really think an election is going to change anything? Basically, what Schäuble was saying, that the finance uh, power was running the country, and it doesn't matter what uh, the uh, public votes in a referendum. It do and uh, uh, Varoufakis said, wait a minute, we had an election, and the people throughout uh, the party uh, that wanted to have, uh, that uh, you wouldn't have led a referendum uh, three years ago, uh, and... Uh, uh, we're having a different position now. We're not going to privatize. Uh, we're not going to give away. Uh, we're going to stop the corruption. Uh, and uh, we want to stop the money laundering and the capital flight. And uh, Schreibel said, you can't do it. We expect you to adhere to the same uh, 
position that uh, the parties you've just thrown out of power did. Uh, uh, democracy doesn't matter. Well, a few already two years earlier, the Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung had uh, published an article by Frank Schirmacher uh, called Democracy is Junk, saying that uh, the demands by uh, when uh, President Obama uh, and uh, Treasury Secretary Geithner went over to the uh, Gang of Eight meetings uh, with uh, Merkel and Sarkozy and said you and told uh, the Greek Prime Minister Papandreou you cannot have a referendum. If you have a referendum, people will vote against uh, uh, the bailout loan. We have to bail out the loan because the American banks uh, have made gambles. We've written uh, default insurance uh, and made and treated the bond market like a horse race. And uh, if the American banks go under because uh, Greeks uh, cannot pay the debt, then we'll go under and we'll pull you under. You can be sure. So uh, and uh, Papandreou was removed from office a few days later, as was uh, Italy's prime minister wanted a referendum. So you really have uh, essentially what Aristotle was describing 2,000 years ago. Aristotle described democracy as a stage immediately preceding oligarchy and that uh, democracy tended to emer uh, evolve into oligarchy. That's exactly what we're having today, and that's what the meeting was in Brussels uh, about. Is there anything we can do against this? Yeah, and so what happened after the referendum was obviously a huge disappointment because we were a lot of people who hoped that, as Varoufakis actually ha had, like that there was a plan B ready to be implemented, some kind of return back to the drachma, some so some sort of uh, some sort of uh, going back to where the Greek central bank actually would be able to do some of these things that we were talking about here, like uh, issuing, uh, like buying treasury bond tre treasury bonds, but but um, but uh, <laughs> but then yeah, so you just had this huge capitulation, and and what's going to happen now is that Syriza is going to lose its youth. It, the youth of Syriza were were really you know the people promoting the no for the vote and they were actually and they were the people actually making this possible the way i see it they are hugely disappointed now now we'll be seeing a split of a Syriza. it will be a disaster for greece because this was an this was an amazing opportunity for for the greek government for Syriza to actually fight the the terrible corruption in the country and now we will see political crisis deflation and then an economic crisis that will also strengthen the, the the fascist right wing side of politics in Greece. So this was really a lost opportunity and a, and a great disappointment. Tuna, I think you're missing your own point that you should make. Uh, what Plan B was was not uh, to replace the euro with the drachma. Uh, that would have taken a much longer period of time. Plan B was a much shorter plan. Plan B was for the government, uh, without having uh, a, the European Central Bank issue money, the Greek Treasury would play the role of the Central Bank and issue its own uh, money in the form of uh, debt uh, of tax anticipation notes. It was to issue a currency denominated in euros. The plan was not to leave the euro. It was to create exactly what you've been uh, describing, money uh, independently of the banking and si bond holding system. So I guess the guy we should really uh, listen to here would be uh, with Lapavitsas, the, the economist Lapavitsas, who, who had some quite uh, some some further, some more aggressive plans about what Greece should do. And I guess maybe they were more ambitious and and better than the ones Varoufakis had. I'm not saying that they're better. Uh, 
but uh, his plan was indeed to leave the euro. Uh, and uh, obviously, there's no way that Greece can survive within the euro. That uh, We're not descri uh, discussing that. The problem is, how does Greece leave uh, when you have uh, the European banks threatening to close down all of the electronic fund transfers in Europe and essentially treat Greece like America treated Cuba and Iran and North Korea? How do you re-denominate the debts from euros to uh, drachma in a way that will get through the international courts. Uh, th this was what uh, not only uh, Vero Fakis was doing alone, but he had Jamie Galbraith, uh, uh, his colleague from uh, the University of Texas uh, uh, in Austin there. Uh, they were trying to figure out how Greece could at least do what the state of California did uh, in issuing its uh, own money, which is exactly what you want to do. Uh, and this was uh, had to be done before uh, you could simply uh, take the time to print uh, the drachma currencies, plane loads of it. Uh, uh, both Varoufakis and uh, his his. Uh, advisors and friends knew that it takes a long time to replace one currency with another, not only the physical spending money, but also the legal problems of redefining money, uh, that be, there is sort of an international war of finance to make sure that other countries cannot break away from the financial system that you've been describing. Uh, so it was a two-stage thing. Uh, uh, your guy was referring to the later stage. Yeah, so I absolutely agree with you, Hudson, anyway. And actually, this has to be seen as, you know, you have to... The, the Maastricht Treaty of 1992 has specifically handicapped the, all these central banks so that you can actually not do what uh, we in Positive Money and Go the Ping is promoting. And this has to be uh, taken into account as well. One of the points I thought was interesting in, in one stage of this, this Greek uh, uh, implosion was... Uh, the maybe four or five years ago there was talk of or it was it was happening that there is this sort of promissory note was being um, uh, printed in Greece that was backed up by some form of property tax in in Greece so uh, Michael was there much talk about that sort of uh, uh, land back um, a sovereign currency that that was offered on some sort of basis there I introduced that into the discussion we had with the left Tsaritsa people uh, as something necessary, and uh, uh, the discussion was positive, but they uh, uh, that had to follow the emergency as part of the general uh, restructuring. Uh, I suggested bringing over a group of uh, American property appraisers who would make a land map uh, of uh, Greek, Greece. Many of the Greeks were complaining to me about how the rich prop the rich don't pay taxes, and they uh, uh, you can simply have a, a, a helicopter fly over Athens, and you can take uh, uh, pictures of all of the estates with large swimming pools that are valued at almost nothing and owned by people who seem to make uh, maybe a hundred dollars or ten thousand euros a year. Uh, how do you uh, uh, how do you uh, explain this uh, unexplained wealth? And in America, there are many. Uh, there's a whole legal system for uh, unexplained uh, uh, wealth acquisition. Uh, this could certainly but, uh, be done in Greece, uh, but that was sort of for a follow-up uh, after the initial emergency. And I'm sure one of the reasons the financial interests keep Greece in an emergency is so it can't uh, undertake any real structural fiscal reform of this type. Okay, well, this has been an amazing conversation here with Tuna Nielsen and Professor Michael Hudson, but... Uh Let's not finish yet.
One last point. Uh, I want to just ask a bit of background on what happened with Yanis Varoufakis, the Greek finance minister who really held up a strong fight against the Troika banking system. He was so positive, but uh, when he resigned, he gave his exit interview to the New Statesman. I'm not sure if either of you read that, but he revealed some extraordinary details there on just the unwillingness to engage in economic analysis at the highest policy levels. It was almost as if that was already conducted and uh, we're just here to be the, uh, the bastions of uh, the vested interests. Yeah, so I think you have to see the finance ministers of the Eurogroup as puppets for this financial capitalism, which is, which is infesting our society completely. They are, they're not economists, they're lawyers. And they don't have any uh, economic theories to back up all their, their claims. They just see Greece doing what they're not allowed to do. And then they, read, they, they look in their books and they say, okay, uh, that, yeah, that's good. All well, your economic theories are probably right. But I have some books here. I mean, I'm a lawyer. I don't know what you're talking about. We have to make sure that you do what's in this book. And no one's questioning <laughs> what sort of structure created this, these laws. Well, they're not only lawyers, but they're collection agents for the bondholders uh, and for finance capital. And Yanis uh, uh, and uh, uh, Tsipras, uh, the party head, had thought that they could reason with them. And as you said, they thought, we can tell you, uh, explain how Greece can recover. And uh, all they got was blank stares. They said, that's not what we're discussing here. Uh, all, uh, we're not here to discuss economic theory. We, you, you're probably right, and we sympathize with you. We're here to collect. This is non-negotiable, and they never negotiated a single thing or gave a single inch to what Varoufakis uh, uh, wanted. So the reason he resigned was he had a meeting with the uh, uh, the rest of the Syriza party, and uh, he proposed his plan B, but he was outvoted four to two because the other party members, uh, first of all, politicians uh, d rarely understand economics either and finance, largely because they're lawyers. Uh, a part of the pr that's part of the problem. But the other problem is they were afraid of just the anarchy that they saw would be imposed by treating Greece like America treated uh, Cuba, that uh, there would be uh, an international war against Greece, and they feared uh, the anarchy. And uh, uh, Varoufakis thought that he could handle it by issuing uh, the government uh, euro-denominated money. Uh, they were just afraid that they, uh, they got cold feet. And they didn't have confidence in the taxation system to back up, uh, you know, the twin cannons of uh, taxation to, to back up uh, w what was being proposed. So, again, uh, this planned obsolescence of the public interest, uh, I dare say that's what we've summarised today. Thank you, gentlemen. We've seen uh, all sorts of kids uh, driving around in their electric cars here. We've had others on bikes. We've seen squirrels. We've got uh, one woman who's done 50 laps trying to put a kid to sleep. Uh, maybe we should get her to uh, listen to this interview. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> uh, it's been fantastic. Uh, always good to discuss with you, Michael. Thank you so much. I'm sure you'll exit out uh, any of the really sensitive passages. <laughs> Thank you very much. All right. Cheers, guys. And that was... Professor Michael Hudson from michael-hudson.com and Tune Nielsen from Positive Money Denmark. Check out the show notes at earthsharing.org.au to find the relevant links. Thanks very much for listening to 3CR and the Renegade Economists.